0: Great, thank you for that lovely singing, and uh, to our musicians as ever, and uh, I know your homes will have been very orderly over this weekend with all the men away, Um, and uh, know that now that it's men's time over the weekend, uh, a lot of you ladies will know that tomorrow night it's ladies' time Um, at Trinity Church. Nancy Guthrie, who's an excellent speaker, is coming to speak tomorrow night to the women, but I guess you know that already. And I hope you have a great time together um, learning the word through her. Also, let's be mindful of Tori coming up two weeks, two Sundays from now, after all the planning and preparation. Two Sundays from now is when the first service in Tori will be happening. So it's part of my daily prayer life now. I hope it's part of your daily prayer life now, whether you're personally involved or not. And uh, as home groups kick off as well, uh, let's all be praying together because um, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. There's just no point unless we're praying that God will reveal himself to new people in a new part of the city. It's exciting, it's challenging, and uh, Satan will be active, undoubtedly so. So let's be praying against his schemes, and let's be praying that Jesus will be made known to a whole new bunch of people. Let me pray now and please have your Bibles open, 1 Samuel 2, as we look into this glorious passage, psalm, poem together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the sunshine. Pray that the Fascali people will be having the same sunshine and enjoying their time together. And now, Lord, quiet in our hearts to hear your word. Father, we know that this moment is extra important in our week, not because I'm speaking, but because we pray that you will be speaking. Help me to be faithful to what the passage is teaching, and help us all to be listening as though Jesus were right here talking to our very souls, because we know that he is. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. Now, our title today is The God Who Shapes Our Destiny. And I'm going to start with a quote, uh, one of my favorite quotes. The great theologian, Abraham Kuyper, said this. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. In other words, every event on this planet Every issue that you and I face in our personal lives are ultimately under the control and supervision of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate authority over every part of life. Now that may seem a bit extreme to you. The world may seem a bit more chaotic, more random, and we may feel that we have more autonomy from God than that. Surely we each shape our own lives. We make our own plans, of which Jesus plays a part, of course, but he surely does not have authority over the whole thing, does he? And yet that's exactly how the Bible pictures God's influence in our world. He is not a God who pops in and out of life here and there while leaving us to get on with things most of the time. No, no. God rules and he reigns over everything, over your life and mine, always invisibly, usually undramatically, but always there. He's intricately involved with our children and grandchildren and where they will end up. He's involved with our hopes and dreams as well as the bigger picture of world affairs and where the whole of human history is headed. That's why we pray. And whether we see it or not, whether we truly understand it or not, God rules over the whole show. And that is the big theme of Hannah's song of praise. It's a poem or a song in 1 Samuel 2. She is praising God for his intervention in her own personal experience. But then she expands to take in God's rule over all things. And this song is encouraging us to see the whole direction of our lives and the whole direction of our planet as under God's guidance. So this poem begins by claiming that God is the Lord of all reality. It's verses 1 to 3 of the poem. God is the Lord of all reality. In verse 1, Hannah begins by looking at her own personal experience and how God has lifted her from despair to strength. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, remember that Hannah was in deep distress back in chapter 1 because she could not have a baby. And her enemy, Peninnah, was mocking her. But Hannah prayed to the Lord, and God gave her a baby, Samuel. And on a surface level, this poem, this song, looks like an excited new mother giving thanks to God for her new baby. And it is, in part. But it's much bigger than that. From verse 2 onwards, Hannah opens up a much wider vista. Remember that she claimed in chapter 1 that it was the Lord who had closed her womb originally. And then the Lord had opened her womb after she prayed to him. And if this is the God who opens wombs and closes wombs, who oversees life from conception onwards, then he is the Lord of all reality. And Hannah moves beyond her own experience, describing how God rules and reigns over everything and everyone. Beginning with this phrase in verse 2 that you'll see all over the Bible, there is none holy like the Lord, none holy like Him. This word holy is much bigger than we think. Holy is not just a statement about God's moral purity. He is very, very, very good. Yes, that's part of it. But the word holy actually means He is set apart. God is set apart from all other creatures, God created everything that exists, but he himself was not created. Everything depends on him for its existence. And if this God created everything, then he must be intimately involved with the creation that he took such time to mold and to sculpt. God is the reason that you are sitting here and breathing today. He is the reason there is blood flowing through your veins and billions of neurons carrying messages in your brain. He is the reason that you think and can make decisions. He is the supreme Lord of all reality. That begins with our personal reality from the moment of conception to the fact that we're sitting here this morning alive and breathing and thinking. But he's not just Lord over our lives personally. He is Lord over The whole of space and time. So verse 2 goes on to say, there is no rock like our God. Probably the most familiar metaphor runs throughout the Psalms. That God is a rock. A rock suggests something solid, immovable, and very, very old. The Psalms often refer to God as the eternal rock. He has existed forever, and he will exist forever, and he rules over human history from his eternal vantage point. He's not bound to time at all. He can be past, present, and future all at once, which is beyond our understanding. There's a great scene in the, in the Indiana Jones movies. Have you seen Indiana Jones movies, those who will admit it publicly? The Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. When I first saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I thought it was the greatest movie of all time. Indiana in this scene, this is Indiana Jones at the top here, Harrison Ford, he is threatening here to blow up the famous Ark of the Covenant in this movie, so that the Nazis don't get their hands on it. But a fellow archaeologist working for the Nazis asks him to think twice before pulling the trigger. To destroy the Ark of the Covenant would be to destroy something so infinitely precious. And the archaeologist says to Indiana Jones, we are traveling through history, but the ark is history. Now that's what it means for God to be the rock. You and I are traveling through history, but God is history. He existed before history began and he rules over all space and time. He is the Lord of all reality, not just in our personal lives, but over the whole of space and time. Now that highfaluting theology, it's glorious theology, it's impossible to take in. That is what led Hannah to make the tremendous sacrifice she did in handing her little boy Samuel into the temple. I mean, what a sacrifice that was. It was a crazy decision from a human point of view. Unless you believe that there is a God who rules over our lives personally and the whole of human history. Hannah could entrust her child that she had prayed for and longed for. She could entrust her child to a God who is holy, who is the eternal rock. She knew she could stand firmly on the God who was the rock of her life in the middle of all the challenges that she faced and the tears that she shed. And so can you. God wants to be your Rock. He wants you to trust Him with your children, with your plans for the future, with your whole life. He wants you to wholeheartedly commit to Him because He is the rock who never moves and never changes. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He can be absolutely trusted with the things that are most precious to you. Trust him with your finances. Trust him with your health. Trust him with your very soul. Not because horrendous things can't happen in life. Of course they can. Hannah's just been through horrendous things in chapter 1. But trust him because when those terrible things do happen, and they will, you will find him to be the rock on which you can stand when everything else around you is giving way. He is the Lord of all reality, the Holy One, the rock on whom you can depend. And, says this incredible poem, this eternal holy God is watching over our lives every day, whether we want Him to or not. Verse 3 says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him, actions are weighed. Can you picture that? God is constantly weighing our actions. He's weighing our thoughts right now. What are you thinking about right now? He's weighing them. Now, that, of course, can be a very comforting thought. In Hannah's case, God saw the despair of her situation, the unfair way that the boastful Peninnah was treating her. God felt compassion for Hannah's helpless state and her humble trust in Him, and He turned her life around. It's comforting to know that there is a God who is watching when you feel all alone and you are a victim of others who are mistreating you. There is a God of justice watching over your life. Nothing can happen to you that God is unaware of or that He doesn't care about. He cares about every detail. But the fact that He is always assessing our actions and our motives is also a a solemn thought, isn't it? Which makes you stop and think. I mean, if everybody in Aberdeen believed that God was assessing their motives and actions right now, they would live differently, surely. If we truly believed that He was the Lord of all reality, the eternal, holy one who assesses our actions, it would change how we think. Stop thinking this way. Stop allowing these kind of ungodly thoughts to germinate in your mind. Start thinking this way because God's watching. Once you start to open your mind to this all-knowing holy God, you realize that the only thing that matters in the whole of life is living in a way that pleases Him. No matter what it costs you, no matter how different that makes your life to everybody else around you. You start to live for an audience of one. And that's where Hannah Song wants to take us. This God wants to be the rock you stand on with everything you've got. With confidence and joy in an uncertain world. While realizing that he could also be the rock that you crash into. If you ignore him in your life. Either way. He is the Lord of all reality, the Lord of your life personally from the moment of conception, the holy ruler over all space and time, and the one who is assessing your every deed and motive. So this poem is teaching us that God rules and reigns over everything. Number one, he's the Lord of all reality. Secondly, he has the power to shape our destiny. That's verses 4 to 8 of this poem. He has the power to shape our destiny. In verses 4 to 8, they claim that God has the power to reverse human fortunes. That's the theme of all of these verses. So he brings down the proud, the wealthy, the self-contained men and women, and he raises up the humble, those who depend on him. That's the big theme. So verse 4, look at it. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven children, but she who has many children is forlorn. That last line, of course, is what God has done for Hannah. He saw her crying out to him in humble faith. She was unable to have children, but she prayed and God opened her womb. And Hannah, then, is the paradigm for how God deals with all of us. He is utterly consistent. He is the rock. This is more than 3,000 years ago, but he's the same God today. He deals with us, the same he dealt with people back then. Do you see? If we are humble, if we place our trust in him, he will honor us. But if we live independently of God, he will bring us down to earth with a crash. He breaks the bows of the mighty. That's a violent action. But the feeble, they bind on strength. That is how he works. Which then gives us a totally different view on what true security looks like in this life. We're all striving for security of some kind, aren't we? Peace. Probably the number one reason why most people in Mill Timber aren't interested in coming to church this morning or hearing anything about God is that they don't think they need him. They've got good jobs, good salaries, good education for their children, life in the suburbs, living the dream. Who needs God when your life is prosperous and secure? But this poem is telling us that there's actually nothing secure in this life. God can change our fortunes in an instant. God will bring down those who feel comfortable and secure and don't feel any need of Him. He'll do that either in this life or the next. But he will raise up those who acknowledge their need of him and, like Hannah, cry out for help and mercy. I find this a real challenge for us as Christians. In my own life, living in the suburbs, I am a suburban Christian. Why do we move to the suburbs? Because we want to be comfortable and safe and secure. And it's tempting to think as Christians that we really don't need God that much either because I'm living in the suburbs. We come to church on a Sunday almost to pay our respects, but it's so easy for our main ambition in life to be living comfortably and securely like everybody else. We can spend much more time thinking about making money and progressing at work and making home improvements and getting our kids the best education. That's the thing that keeps us up at night than we ever do casting ourselves on God. That is the number one danger for every suburban saint. We just forget that our lives are in God's hands and our circumstances could change in a moment. And it can actually be an act of grace for God to allow struggles to come in to our otherwise comfortable lives. So that those troubles will humble us and make us cry out to the Lord. Hannah would not have been in the temple pouring out her soul so intensely. Remember that Eli thought she was drunk. How would she have been praying? Whole body prayer, crying out. She would not have been crying out like that if God had allowed her to have children easily. And have her life sorted and secure. Why did God leave her childless, and allow Penina to boast over her all that time. It was the trouble that made Hannah cry out and lead her to realize that God was her true rock. God was the rock more than anything else in life. Here's the incredible thing. She thought that if I just had this child, this son, my life would be complete. What is that thing in your life? Maybe it's not a child, maybe it's something else. If I just had that thing my life would be complete. And when Hannah gets the child that she thought would bring her all the comfort and security and happiness that she wanted, what does she do? She gives him back to God. Because she realized that even after how she had longed for a son, that actually having that son was not the most important thing. God's plans for her and her son's life were the most important thing. And actually, this decision changes the whole of Israel. We will find out in 1 Samuel. Remember back in Genesis 22, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his precious son Isaac, whom he had waited for for a very, very long time. Why? To teach Abraham that trusting God was the big idea of the whole of life. And he was worth more than the most valuable possession he had. Even the child of promise that he had longed for. The incredible thing about this song, this song of praise, is that Hannah is so confident and full of joy in this song after she's just left her son in the temple for the rest of his life. Because she realized that the only thing that is truly secure in life is God the rock on whom we stand And the troubles that God sent her away deepened her trust in Him eventually. So, brothers and sisters, don't blame God for allowing the very troubles and trials in your life that force you to cry out to Him. You've got to be really emotionally in trouble to cry out like that. Can God allow Christians to be in that position? Absolutely. Until we discover that He is our rock. Not exactly what James is saying in our evening series. Count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, knowing what your trials are producing. Steadfastness, perseverance, understanding that God is your rock. When will we realize that we are not ultimately in control of our lives at all? God has control over life. He has control over death. And here's where it gets really big. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. He has the power to shape our destiny. Sheol was believed to be where people went when they died. Life and death and life after death are in God's hands, not ours. What a wonderful thought for every Christian. We feel at our most vulnerable when we think about growing old and getting ill and frail and then dying, all the fear and uncertainty that brings, but not for the man or woman who's truly trusting in Jesus. He holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands, as Revelation says. And when we close our eyes in this world, the first face we see when we open our eyes again is the Savior who loves us in the next world. There is nothing to be afraid of, ultimately. Dietrich Bonhoeffer About a couple of weeks before he was to die in a concentration camp, Flossenberg Concentration Camp, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him, death beckons to us with heavenly power, if only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland. The tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. If somebody could think that in concentration camp, then so can you. It's a wonderful thought for every believer that life and death and life after death are in God's hands, He shapes our destiny. He shapes it at the beginning of life, from the moment of conception. He shapes it at the end of life, and he shapes it all through the middle of life. Look at verse 8. The end of verse 8 says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now, the ancient world believed that the earth was built literally on pillars. And so this poem was saying, God owns the pillars on which the whole of life rests. He has the power to shape our destiny. From the cradle, to the grave, to life beyond, and to everything in between, His sovereignty is total, and we must let that shape our lives. How do we do that? Well, just one example. Perhaps you're approaching retirement, and you're imagining all the holidays and hobbies that you want to pursue. But have you stopped to see your retirement through God's eyes? He could use you in his service more in retirement than in any other time of your life. That's happening in this church, actually. But God cannot do that with your life if you're only dreaming of beaches and pension schemes. Be useful to the king who holds your destiny in his hands. He's got plenty of time to give you paradise. But your most fruitful days of worship and service could be post-retirement. Early retirement. Why do people retire early? Why? Knowing that God changes our destiny changes how we live and think about the whole thing. We're not living for safety and security in life anymore. Brenton Brown's song puts it beautifully. He says, we choose to leave it all behind. That comfort and security in suburban Christianity way of thinking. We choose to leave it all behind and turn our eyes towards the prize, the upward call of God in Christ. You have our hearts, Lord. Take our lives. God is the Lord of all reality, and he has the power to shape our destiny. And thirdly, he will judge with great finality. That's verses 9 and 10. He will judge with great finality. That's the awesome end-of-time vision that we are left with in verses 9 and 10. God's final judgment is being summarized here in verse 9 it says God will guard the feet of his faithful ones. That is a poetic way of saying that all those who trust in God he will direct safely to glory he guides our feet, why not our head or our hands? Well our feet is what where the direction of our lives are going and he will guide those feet safely to glory. What a beautiful thought. Whatever struggles you may be facing right now as a Christian, he is guarding your feet. He will not let you stumble and fall. He will guard your feet and lead you to glory. So keep trusting, keep praying, keep pouring your soul out to the Lord just as Hannah did, and you will find him to be faithful, so very faithful and loving and gracious and merciful when it's all done in this life and when you reach the next. God guards the feet of his faithful ones. But we can't ignore the other bit of verse 9. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. There's this ominous tone to the phrase, cut off in darkness. And can you see here, God will judge with great finality. We will either be directed to eternal glory or we will be cut off in eternal darkness. It's how big this is. So how do we know whether it's glory or darkness for us? If you look at the end of verse 10, quite a surprising end here. Almost out of nowhere, this song mentions the king. The king hasn't been mentioned yet in the whole of 1 Samuel so far. But suddenly, it almost seems like it doesn't fit. It says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Why does the king suddenly appear here? Who is this king, and what does he have to do with the final judgment? Well, of course, if you know your Bible, this is supernatural prophecy. Hannah is pointing in a way she can't possibly know. She is pointing in this song over a thousand years in advance to King Jesus on whom the fate of the whole world will rest. This is God's plan. It says God will exalt the power of his anointed. Anointed is the word Messiah. God's chosen king. And so whether God takes you and me to glory or whether he cuts us off in darkness depends on whether we have faith and whether we link ourselves to God's chosen king. As our kids' song says, Jesus is the king, ruler over everything. God has exalted Jesus because Jesus humbled himself like this song encourages us to. Jesus rejected the chance to have comfort and security in this life in suburbia lived among peasants, and instead he suffered and died in obedience to God's call. And Jesus is the ultimate example of the humble sufferer whose fortunes are reversed by God. God has now exalted Jesus from a cross where he was barely recognizable as a man to the highest place. He's risen from the dead. He's seated at God's right hand. He has been declared God's eternal king. God's whole future revolves around his king. Our destiny lies ultimately in his hands. So trusting God for you and me now as New Testament Christians means trusting in God's king. Will you believe in Jesus? You might think I'm just asking that to non-Christians. Here I am. Will you believe in Jesus? Your life depends on this. I'm asking to Christians as well. Will you become obsessed by Jesus and be exalted with him at the end of life? Or will you continue living independently of God, making your own way via comfortable suburbs to eternal judgment? Either way, this day of judgment is coming. If Hannah got this right a few thousand years in advance that Jesus was coming, she's also got it right that the final judgment is coming. And Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed to every man and woman. It's appointed. There's a fixed appointment that cannot be changed. It is appointed to man once to die and after that, the judgment. It's the only thing that really matters. God will judge with great finality. For those who humble themselves and submit to King Jesus, it will be eternal glory. For those who go their own way seeking security in this life, it'll be eternal judgment. What will it be for you? God rules and reigns over the whole thing, He's the Lord of all reality. He's the one who shapes your destiny, and he's the one who will judge with great finality. Your life today and your entire future destiny hinge on how you respond to God's King, Jesus. That's it. Let's have a moment of quiet, think through these things, then I'll pray, and then we'll sing. Father, give us faith this morning, eyes to see the totality of your authority over the whole of life, from the moment of conception to every decision we make, every thought we have, to the way the world turns, war in Ukraine. Nations in rage, economics often hanging by a thread, help us not to pretend that this life is our rock, that living in Timber or Cults or Bealside is, those are the people who have made it. Help us to realize that this whole world is sinking sand. You have made it so. You have subjected the current creation to futility so that we would look beyond it to the creator. Help us to see that you are the eternal God. We can't understand that from a mortal perspective. Give us spiritual eyes to see this. You are eternal and you hold our days in your hand. So help us to entrust our days to you. I pray if there's anybody here who hasn't yet met King Jesus personally, may they do that now. Jesus, come and introduce yourself personally to us. And may we lay the whole of our lives and hopes and dreams on this rock. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, if we've been on this Christian road for a long time, but we are caught up in everybody else's dreams, career progress and adding an extension to our home and making sure our kids have the very best, all of which is good, but all of which can also become the biggest evil in our hearts because it's replacing you as God and Lord of all. Father, will you help us to leave it all behind and fix our eyes upon the prize, the upward call of God in Christ. (coughs) Challenge us with these things, Lord, and help us to leave this place knowing that the only thing that really matters in life is where we stand with you and the beautiful King whom you have sent who came, suffered, died, rose again, was exalted, is seated at your right hand and ready to come to judge the living and the dead. We place our lives into the hands of King Jesus today. To you be glory forever. Amen. Amen.